Hi, this is Brad Lominick, author of H3 Leadership, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. If you've ever been on or led a large team, you know how easy it is for the pressure of the responsibilities to weigh on you. People are depending upon deliverables, connections have to be made, and somebody always has to be looking out for the gaps where things can fall through the cracks. What do you do about it? Well, everyone knows that getting everyone on the same page is important. And my next guest, Brad Lomenick, author of H3 Leadership, Be Humble, Stay Hungry, Always Hustle, talks about his team, how he's used that mantra, that phrase, that philosophy to get his team on the same page, and then also how he made the transformation from someone who was feeling the pressure of those responsibilities to being able to step outside of it and then get a perspective that he found very, very helpful with being able to refresh his leadership style and come back with renewed presence. There's a lot to learn here, so settle in, listen closely, and enjoy. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Brad Lomanek. Brad is a leadership consultant, speaker, founder of Blink and the Catalyst Conference. He's the author of two business books, The Catalyst Leader and H3 Leadership, Be Humble, Stay Hungry, and Always Hustle. Brad lives in Oklahoma outside of Tulsa. Welcome, Brad. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Hey, Brad, can you fill in a gap or two from that intro and fill us in on a glimpse of your life outside of work? Yeah, well, growing up in Oklahoma, you know, I'm a hunter, fisherman, outdoorsman, so anything that involves uh, shooting something or, or fishing for something or skiing down a, a black diamond in Colorado, you know, I'm pretty much interested in it. And I, I would also add that, uh, you know, the, the catalyst world for me was part of a 12, almost 15-year journey of, of uh, getting connected to some of the, I would say, the greatest leaders in the world. And, you know, John Maxwell, who many of your listeners probably have read a book from John over the years, he's sort of the guru, the grand pooba of leadership and leadership books. And I got to work with John for several years. So much of the the, the platform I get to stand on is based on sort of climbing up on his shoulders and him allowing me to help him create some stuff that hopefully now has uh, impacted hundreds of thousands, if not millions of leaders. John truly is a, a legend in the field and is so generous with, you know, sharing his insights. Tell me, Brett, um, growing up, did you have an early mentor or was there an early experience you had that suddenly awakened something inside of you to let you know that leadership was an area of interest? And I don't know where that occurred, but can you look back and see if there's an incident that um, resonates with that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think for all of us, you know, there's something in, innate in us if we're leaders. And people ask me all the time, are leaders made or are they born? And I would say yes and yes. They, they are made and they are born because all of us have wiring within us that that maybe propels us to the front of the line or pushes us out where other people won't go. But I can remember in first grade in Mrs. Weaver's class in a small little town outside of Tulsa, Bristow, Oklahoma. And I was in the class and by, I think by the end of day one, Bill, I, I knew everybody's name in the class. By end of day two, I was doing trade deals in the cafeteria. And by end of day three, 
I think we started some kind of riot or, or movement to get chocolate milkshakes along with vanilla in the, in the cafeteria. And that was just, that was normal for me. It was just normal to, to connect with people, to, um, to, to bring people together, to gather them, to, to, um, sort of stand out in front and, and create opportunities for the tribe to, to move something. And, you know, that happened throughout elementary school. You know, I was always sort of running for whatever the, whatever the office was that was available to, you know, to be in charge, student council, uh, class president, captain of the sports team. I mean, all those things for me at the time, I didn't understand it, but it was natural. And that's because there was something within me that said, Brad, you're, you know, you, you, you have the, the built-in DNA to, to be the person, not because you, you, you're sort of seeking the spotlight of leadership, but more because there's something that you're supposed to be doing to elevate other people by taking the place and the mantle of the captain's chair. And that's, I just saw it throughout my, my early life. And there were, there were people that connected me into that and coaches and teachers and principals who, who pulled it out of me. But, you know, it was just natural, I would say, more than anything else. What sports did you play, Brad? Well, in a small school, as anybody knows, you know, raise your hand if you grew up in a small school. Everybody, if you're any kind of athlete, you play everything. So I, I played everything, football, basketball, uh, golf. I played a little bit of baseball, but it was awful. So, you know, that the spring sport became golf pretty quick. But football, basketball, and golf were sort of the three seasons of sports that I was part of. Yeah, it's the same thing. And this is a really important part I want to underscore. Um, Brad, you, you talked about how it was just a natural orientation for you to step forward and gather people together to do things, and I relate to that. I, it's, it's something that I think everyone who is leading a business will understand because you look around and you see what needs to be done. You see what the steps are. You automatically feel that there's a need for something to be done, and you just naturally start taking steps about doing it. I bet you can also relate to the fact that you didn't need to read five leadership books or take a seminar in order to start leading. It was something you just started to do in first grade because you knew that we needed chocolate milk, milkshakes in, in addition to vanilla. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to anything to do, though, with being an extrovert or introvert. I mean, I think a lot of people, yeah. they'll say, well, I'm not a people person. You know, I, 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 I like to sort of sit in the corner and talk to one person. Well, those are, those are two different skill sets, you know, um, so just because you're you're naturally quiet or you may be more behind the scenes or you may be naturally, you know, sort of you, you may navigate towards um, not necessarily the places of influence or out in front doesn't mean you still can't lead. Because uh, at the end of the day, it is built into us. And as John Maxwell says, leadership is influence. You know, if you if you want to define it, it's based on do you impact other people? So this is our job description. It, it doesn't matter if you're a mother or a father or a neighbor, if you're a student, if you're a teacher, if you're a CEO, you know, all of us are influencing people and therefore we're all leading. And I think a lot of times we think, well, leaders are the, are the ones who, they, they are the ones who just seek the spotlight. And that may be true, but I don't think it's the true definition of leadership. And if, if that's what it's all about, I mean, I, I love what Simon Sinek says about leadership. It's not a reward. It's a responsibility. You know, you, you don't just seek leadership and say, 
and I can't wait to get to the top so I can sit around and put my feet up on the desk and drink spritzers all day and bark out commands at the minions. You know, that it, leadership is, is hard. It's the responsibility of then flipping the whole model, and now you're the servant of everyone that you're leading. And, you know, that's what I want to see leadership look like is that there's this sense of huge stewardship on your shoulders of, oh, man, nobody told me it was going to be like this. And But that's what we sign up for. You know, if you want to lead, it's going to be hard. And if you want to lead, you're going to have to be responsible for people. And this is why when people get into places of leadership, many times, you know, the, the pressure starts to, p- to push things out that they don't want to see. And many of us get into places where we look around and go, wait, why am I acting like this? Like, why am I responding like this? It's, well, it's because of the pressure of leading. Can you give an example of, of maybe someone you've worked with, maybe someone you observed or studied who had that happen to them, where they started to experience this myopia due to either misconceptions or the overwhelm of the responsibility? I think that's a point that a lot of people relate to once they get into a position of leadership. Yeah, I'll give you my example because I think many times uh, the best examples of, are, are us. You know, that's what that's what self-awareness is. And, you know, I was leading this thing called Catalyst, which some of your listeners may know about, but many probably don't. And, you know, we were doing big conferences started by John Maxwell, thousands and thousands and thousands of leaders showing up and a lot of responsibility. And we're up into the right, Bill. Like we're we're successful. We're you know we're selling events out. We're filling up stadiums. It, all the things are really good. But for me, my leadership was starting to get toxic because the pressure continued to mount. And every event, it was like, well, we got to sell it out again. And and so my natural default, if I'm not careful, is to be really really short with people. I'm an ENTJ. I I, I can leave people in the ditch. You know, and things started to get again. Not hard, because they were always hard, but things – I started to feel the pressure. And I remember we took our team out to a celebration day at Dave & Buster's. You know, we're playing skee-ball and hoop shoot and all that stuff, and everybody gets the tickets. And we've got a lot of tickets, and the team goes and buys something in the gift shop, and they bring it back to me. And they say, hey, we got this for you, Lamanek. This is, this is for you based on allowing us to celebrate today. And inside this bag were two dolls which why do they have dolls at Dave and Buster's? I don't know. But one of the dolls was, was this angel doll. And I pulled that one out first and they said, Oh, that's, you know, so what, what is this? And they said, that's, well, that's the, the, the Brad Lominick we love. We love working for mm-hmm. him, the angel doll. And of course, you know, the setup is you can hear it coming. Mm-hmm. And so the other doll was this devil doll, which again, why does Dave and Buster's have an angel and devil doll? I don't know, but it, and they, I said, well, what is this one? And they said, that's Darv. I said, who's Darv? They said Darv is the nickname we've had for you for the last year. And Darv is Brad backwards, B-R-A-D, D-A-R-B. And it was this wake-up call for me of, man, my team for the last year, probably longer, had had been trying to come up with some way to explain my shortness, my temper, my flying off the handle, my – the, the pressure mounting and Darv when Darv was in the office, Bill, nobody wanted to be around him. It was and it was high. You got it, man. You got it. And thankfully, from thankfully, I had a team that was willing to confront me. Now they did it all together, so it was way easier, you know, to sort of say, "Hey, this is something we're seeing." But at that point, I had to re- I had to respond and say, "Hey, I'm going to work on this." 
or I could I could have said, well, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're all fired. You don't understand me. You don't know the pressures of leadership. And I had to I had to really step back and say, you know what? Like a little less darb and a, and a lot more Brad. And this is true for all of us, you know. And I didn't set out to do that. I, there was no point that I said, you know, if I can just be a toxic leader, that would be amazing. Man, I would really be hitting the mark if I'm if I'm. But but our defaults and our our toxic places and the the pressure starts to get to us, and we start to we start to not only lead like we've been led before, but we also start to go to these places that that are naturally um, the opposite of what we want to do. And so from then on, I put both dolls. My assistant Michelle, she would put both dolls out in front of the door every day, and one of those dolls would represent me that day. And if somebody came by the office and they were like, "Oh gosh, there's Darb." The Darb dolls up. Stay away. Don't nobody go in. You know, and 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 over time, that had to be more of the of the the Brad doll. And and here's what what also happened, Bill, is that the team all of a sudden had the the, the both the freedom and the um, I would say the responsibility to to call me out on it. And as soon as you're if you're self aware as a leader, as soon as you allow your team to be part of the system that says, hey. You're darving me right now. Stop. And a lot of us, we don't realize that, and then we, we create all these systems and hierarchy that doesn't allow any of our team to actually tell us what we need to hear. And so if I did it, you know, somebody would say, hey, stop darving me. You're, you're turning into that guy again. And I would get, you know, mad and go, well, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. That, that's a little less darb, a little more brad. So. It's a, it's a silly example, but I hope hope one that, that connects with people. You know, I think that's really, really interesting on a number of levels. First of all, a lot of times when pressure mounts, um, it, leaders will create systems or experiences or um, symbols within their companies, and it shuts down communication. Yours at that moment, through some choice of yours as well as the support of your team, became a conduit for having more open conversations, which really created a healthier environment. Um, I, I think that second of all, I, I think that it would be wonderful to see <laughs> how this was explained in some future edition of your company orientation manual. It allowed for everybody else on the team to think, well, what's my name backwards? And am I doing that? And, you know, and every, everybody, everybody wants to work in an environment, whether you're in charge or whether you're the intern. Everybody wants to work in an environment where there's where self awareness is is just the forefront of the the culture. And you know, a lot of times the leader we we walk around in reality deprivation syndrome. And we walk around with this facade around us that nobody can tell us what's true, you know, you're in charge, you're at the top of the food chain. So everybody everybody starts to just tell you what you want to hear compared to what you need to hear. And Leaders have to have to give people permission to push back on them. They have to give people permission. And over time, you know, this is this is always true. Like people will say, Well, how do you do that, Brad? Well, if you're sitting in a meeting or you're in a staff meeting or you're one on one with one of your team members and you say, Hey, tell me something tell me something about myself that I need to know and that person will say, Oh, you're amazing. You're the best leader ever. You should be in the world's Guinness World Record book of great leaders. Like no, really. Tell me something. Tell tell me something I've done recently that that you would say I need to work on. 
oh no, there's nothing, there's nothing. And then you say it again. Tell me something. I need, I need your, I need your feedback. And then they go, well, you know, there was this one time. And then you say, okay, tell me something. Tell me. And then they go, okay, now I've got the list. And here's 47 things that you've done in the last 10 days that have, you know, that you need to work on. But the point of that, of that example is that you as the leader have to ask for feedback and you have to create a system that allows for, for feedback. It allows for pushback. It allows for people to speak into your leadership. And that's really hard because when you're in charge, nobody wants to tell you the truth. When you're paying the paycheck, nobody really wants to tell you what you, what you need to hear. But man, this is so important as a leader. If you want a healthy culture, you have to, you have to give people permission and we always try to do this. I've, every team I've ever had, I've tried to create a, an environment where people felt the, the flexibility, the permission. Um, they, they felt like they could they could speak truth. And there's appropriate ways to do that. But if, if I want to work in that kind of environment, and I also wanted the people on my team to, to be able to work in that kind of environment. Fred, let me deconstruct a couple points from that example because it's so important for everyone listening to take this into their culture. This, this whole idea that's epitomized in H3 leadership is captured in that short example, I believe, because you're humble enough to ask for the feedback. You're staying hungry because you're eager for it not only to be true for you, but for others to speak truth to everyone, their colleagues, their supervisors, the people who report to them, to do that, and always hustling in order to make sure that that stays part of the culture. I think that when you model that conversation of a leader asking for feedback, you kept pushing until the person that was being that feedback was being solicited from started with an example, said one time, dot, dot, dot. And that's such a key phrase for everyone listening to take back into their feedback sessions in order to ask people, tell me about a time when I was doing well and tell me about a time when I could have done better. That's the heart of constructive feedback. And the whole idea where you wanted it for everyone, that's a desire that's really an important part of the culture. Is there anything missing from that that you look back and say, that also made it really work effectively in the, the teams that I've led? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's always this, this pressure on leaders to paint something that feels like the picture of what they think a, a great leader looks like. And, you know, this is this goes back to what I said earlier. Like you, you lead like you were led. You, you lead like you were led, and and this is good for all of us who were led by great leaders, or had great leaders in our lives who modeled this, who modeled appropriate, healthy leadership. Then game game on, man, you win. But a lot of us, a lot of us, we we have these examples of the way we were led that are not healthy, and then we end up becoming that. And the same the same is true in parenting. Same is true in coaching. I mean, you know, so you have to break the cycle. You, you have to be the one that says, I'm, I'm going to lead people like they want to be led, not the way that, that I have been led. And this is more important than ever because one of the key things, I think, with the next generation today especially, and just the, the current generation of workers in companies and nonprofits and organizations around the world, is that people are looking for a culture that is healthy and also customized for them. And, and here's an example, Bill. I mean, the greatest example is the reality of every person walking into your organization today saying, I want to create my own economy in the sense of, in the sense of I want to have flexibility with time. 
I want to I want to show up when I want to show up, and I want to leave when I want to leave, and I'll work to get the job done. So a lot of us who were led by the example of no, you show up eight o'clock and you leave at five or later, but you never show up, you know, later than eight. And it's eight to five. It doesn't matter if you're just playing solitaire the whole day. You're there. You're there and you're present. For for any of us who were led like that, to then have a you know 27 year old who says. I really like to have some flexibility in, in the, the hours and how I approach the, you know, what normal office hours looks like. You have to think differently. You have to say, okay, I'm going to lead this person individually, specifically, uniquely customized and how they want to be led. And every person is different. And it, it, that's harder. It's more complicated. It takes more work. But, but that's what people are walking into organizations today expecting. And it, that doesn't mean they're, they're, they're disloyal or, they're not committed or they're entitled. It just means that that's in a reality. So I, I would just add that, you know, lead people like they want to be led, not like the way you were led. It's absolutely true that it's more work, yet the reward is that you actually build a culture that people want to belong to. They look forward to coming to work if you're creating a culture where results matter, where getting the job done matters, what matters. And I think that the point that you're, you're highlighting here is that managers want those results. And the old ways of doing things just aren't going to work. And you could try it. I'm sure that you would agree that they could try the five or six moves that they have with, you know, threatening and writing people up and thinking that holding them accountable is not going to, is going to make the, the difference. But really, it goes back to that authenticity you talked about earlier. It goes back to building those relationships. It goes back to seeing people as individuals and really listening to what it is they want that will allow them to make their greatest contribution. And it also puts tremendous amounts of importance on hiring people. You know, take take more time to hire the right person that fits the culture, that is that is self-motivated, compared to just getting anyone on the team because you need a warm body and then trying to fit them into working for your culture. So – you know, I, I tell leaders all the time, listen, it's your fault. I mean, if, if I know I know this is part of a job description, but if that person's on the team and they're constantly pushing back and, and causing trouble, that, that's a hiring issue. You know, so you have to be really, really careful and really strategic about making sure you onboard the right people. And if that means take more time, then take more time. This is something you and I have both done a great deal with hiring people, bringing them on teams, helping orient them. What are one or two tips that you've found that makes it effective based upon the research that you've done and your own experience? Maybe a couple questions or techniques that help people get a better cultural fit. Yeah, I mean, I, I always want to know, I always want to know the, the, the story behind that person. So I, I get it. Resume, great. LinkedIn, awesome. You know, you're, you're sort of showing up with your best foot forward, but I want to know the story. I want to, I want to hear like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about growing up. Where, you know, tell me about your parents, your family. Tell me about your story uh, because the story behind the story matters. And so the more you have time to get into that, I think the better. I would also say, um, if, you know, don't be the only person that interviews someone or spends time with them. If that means that you have four or five folks or, or 10 or 15 or 20, you know, that end up connecting with this person you're wanting to hire. I mean, the, the more, the better. It doesn't mean that you're, you're, um, you're then sort of hiring by committee. But what it does mean is you're getting feedback. You're, you're getting input from different people. Um, and then, you know, I would, 
I would allow them. I always think that allowing someone to have a little bit of a test run is a good thing. You know, we, we very rarely ever hired somebody without them being an intern. Now, at high levels of an organization, that's not possible. But I would just say that model, that mindset of, of test them before saying yes is always a good thing. You know, you want to see them actually, like, working with your team. And, again, for us, we were in the conference world. And so we would say, hey, we need you to come work at an event for three days and we're, you know, we'll, we'll pay you a, we'll, we'll pay you some kind of day rate. That's fine. But we want to see you operate in our environment before we say yes to you being full time with us. And so that's what I mean by slow and, you know, just being very proactive towards the hiring process compared to, well, we, you know, one person entered, talked to them and seemed like a good fit. And, and Jojo said that, you know, they're a friend and we should hire them. You know, that, that's all that's all part of the equation, but I would I would just say take more time. Hire slow, fire fast. I think those are terrific points. I know that in, in my own experience, whenever I'd have multiple people um, having a conversation with a potential person coming into the organization, I'd always have them send me an email or later on we did it as a, uh, an online forum where they would have to reply back in the subject line, hire or don't hire and then bullet points mm. that supported that decision. I didn't want to that's write good. I just wanted your gut. Hire, don't hire. Yeah. Here's why. Um, that's good. This one is becoming increasingly popular. We're even parts of jobs from every sector. People are giving, being given test runs and exercises as part of their interview process. So that falls right in line with having them come to a, a conference and fulfill certain roles and responsibilities. That's an excellent way to test things out. I love that you introduced that because many people probably weren't thinking that that would be possible. What would be one of the biggest challenges you had writing H3 leadership? There are a lot of leadership books out there, Brad. What was one of the challenges you had in terms of bringing it together? Well, the, the easy part was, was coming up with the title because that for me was, you know, this idea of be humble, stay hungry, always hustle has always been my leadership mantra, even from my early 20s. and when our interns would show up at, at Catalyst, you know, we, we'd gather them together and, and they would typically always sort of say, all right, just boil it down. You know, what, what's the, what, what is it that I need to know? Like, how am I going to succeed here? And I would say, if you live out these three principles, be humble, stay hungry, always hustle. If you can do that, if you, if you wear that T-shirt, that becomes your leadership mantra, then you win. And so for me, that was the easy part. The difficult part for me was – was that this was a reboot of my own leadership. Again, you know, the, the season I was in, it wasn't a burnout, but it was it was that my leadership had gotten a sta- gotten stale. It had gotten not, I mean, in some ways toxic, but but I just needed to reevaluate the, the leadership habits that I wanted to put in place for the next 30 to 40 years of my leadership journey. And so that part was hard because that was a lot of painful, um, I would say, you know, prescriptive sort of, uh, looking at my own leadership, my own life, and uh, the the book is is I'm pretty feel like I'm an authentic person, so I feel there, there's a lot of the book that is describing the things that I wasn't doing well, and the the habits. There's 20 leadership habits that are in the book, and and many of those I was not living out. So, you know, that's the hard part in writing any book. That the challenge always comes how how personal are you going to be? How much are you willing to point the finger at yourself or to make, you know, to make light of the, the, the case study that is your own story 
compared to sort of finding out research from other people. And so I can say that, you know, my, my, uh, my journey and this, this sort of season of life for me five, four or five years ago was, was really the, ep- I mean, it's the epicenter of the story and it's the epicenter of what both hopefully great leadership looked like, but also what, mis- what at the time, you know, some poor leadership looked like. So Brad, I'm looking at the, the 20 habits and values that are here under humble, hungry, and hustle, the, the main sections of the book. What was one of them where you started writing it and you started looking at how, through an introspective process, looking at how well you were doing in this area, and you said, oh, man, this one is not going to be easy because you had to make changes in order to write about it effectively, right? I would say both for, for the, the season of life I was in as well as the one that I, I always just want to make sure and highlight is this habit of curiosity and the idea of asking really good questions and being the constant learner. Um, I, I watch great leaders and leaders I admire. You know, they, they're still, even when they're the, you know, when they're the best-selling author, when, when they're the, the keynote speaker, when they're the, the, the reason everybody's showing up to an event, um, I love it when I see them sitting still in the front row with their moleskin out and taking notes, even though they've heard it all. You know, they, and, and they're the reason everybody's showing up. And, and a lot of us, we you know, we, we get to the top of the food chain, we get to the pinnacle, or we get through college or whatever that educational season was, and we think, okay, coasting now, man, I'm, it is just on cruise control. And I have to remind myself constantly, like, no, Brad, you, you need to be a learner. You need to be soaking it up. You need to be a sponge, but you also need to be the, the most curious person in the room. And when you become the grand poobah, you know, when you're the reason everybody's shown up to that dinner party, a lot of times we forget that the thing that makes us most interesting is that we're interested. Like the thing that makes us the, the most compelling is that we're curious. And I love being around people who ask me a lot of questions. So I, I want to walk into every, every room now. You know, that, this, is, this was for me sort of this re, reboot was, Brad, every room you walk into, be the most curious. Be that hungry second and not the arrogant first. You know, I'm not sitting around going, well, somebody really needs to ask me a really good question because I got all the answers and these people don't know what they're missing. No, I, I want to walk into every room and, and be the person that is peppering people with curiosity. And here's what's amazing, though, um, especially younger leaders. Like if, if you're a young leader and you're listening to this and you're trying to gain credibility, the best way for you to gain instant credibility is ask a good question. Don't feel like you have to come up with the right answer or the best answer. If you ask a really good question, you win. You posture yourself in a conversation both in, in a place of power as well as in a place of honor. Because when you ask a good question, what you're saying to somebody is, I honor you. Like, I really want to know. And so that one, for me, I just always want to lead with that, that posture of walking in the room with my moleskin out. You know, again, whether I have it out or not, but you get the picture. Like, you're, everybody you meet, you're sort of taking notes on them and you're, you're finding something out from them. And it's, it's a great way to live because you look back and go, man, I have captured so much stuff that's really helping me along my journey. Fred, what was getting in the way of you being a really curious person and staying in touch with that? Well, I, it, this is true for all of us. Like when we are in charge, then we start thinking that the answer is the, is the best thing for us to think about compared to the question or that we have to have the right answer or that, that every room we walk into, we're supposed to be giving answers or we're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to have that, 
the the solution to the problem. And this is true, you know, if you're if, again, if you're a, if you're a person in charge, if you're an executive director or a CEO or a pastor or a principal or whatever you are, like you you can walk into to your executive team meetings, and I, I've seen this with great CEOs I admire. Like they don't they walk in and they ask a really good question of their executive team, and that good question ends up then starting to reveal really good answers compared to you show up and and you sort of open it up and say, all right, anybody have anything? Okay, great. Here's what we're going to do. And I become that person of here's what we're going to do. And I didn't choose to do that. I just over time it became sort of my natural place because because that was what was expected of me compared to always starting with the with the understanding of, well, a good question, Brad, in this case, may end up actually revealing the best solution to this problem. Um, so that it's, it happens to all of us. We have to be really careful that we, we, don't, we don't lose that, that posture of curiosity, of question asking, of, of allowing the, the process to actually end up fueling the answer compared to us showing up and feeling the pressure of, well, you better wow me, Lominick. You better come up with the best thing ever because this is what you're supposed to do. And that's, that's just a, that's a wrong assumption in leadership. Yeah, and how, how easily that could lead people down a non-productive path. You've been in the room with people, you know, like John Maxwell, Jim Collins, Malcolm Gladwell, Marcus Buckingham. You've been led, and your, your book is full of really good examples. As we're speaking now, what's an example of a, a time you were in a meeting, and it might not be one of the luminaries, it might have been someone within your organization, who came in and asked a question just, that just turned things around. People were looking at trying to solve an issue or a problem or exploit an opportunity. And just by someone raising the right question at the right time, it helped shift the thinking and lead you to a, a solution. Yeah. Well, I, I do remember um, I remember an actual uh, sort of all-day strategic meeting that we had with a the, with the gentleman named Pete Richardson. And Pete does um, – he does sort of coaching and, and strategic life plans. Uh, he uses the, the Patterson Life Coach model, uh, which now, you know, hundreds of people sort of around the country use. And we were talking about some, you know, some strategic planning for the company. And this was all part of John Maxwell's organization. And, and Pete came in and just asked the question, why? You know, like it was pretty simple, though. It was like, huh, we're going to start there. And we had been thinking about the what, like we had been mm-hmm. wrestling with the what and the how. And, you know, it's, it's not revolutionary. Like Pete was not the, he didn't come up with, with why, but the, just the idea that here was a outsider who came in and forced us to, to wrestle with the why. For me, that was a great lesson of not necessarily always starting with why, but, but that why is important. And we tend to, to we, we bypass why because why it's hard. Sure. Not only that, but also having to explain your whys and your assumptions and your starting points to an, um, someone with a tabula rasa who hasn't been part <laughs> exactly. of all of the assumptions so far. You got it, man. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I love recommending Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, because it's such a great book. And, uh, you know, anything Simon does, he's, he's, he's a He's uh, in many ways a genius, and I think a voice for a new generation of of leadership and also organizations. But that was just a good reminder for me, a uh, simple example, yeah. but just start with why. Like, you know, have somebody from the outside, and don't be afraid of that. 
because we get so bogged down in the what and the and how and even the when, but we forget about the why. And even if the why doesn't lead to important tactical decisions, it could reconnect people with their sense of motivation and direction for following a particular path or pursuing a particular project or client. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the, the team really wants to know the why. I'll, uh, I'll work hard on the what if I understand the why behind it. More than ever today, we have to, we have to explain the why. We have to, we have to start with that. We have to, we have to connect the dots because, you know, the, 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 the natural posture of a young leader today is to, is to question. And for many of us who are older, that, that can feel like annoying. But like, listen, I'm in charge. You're not. Just do it. Compared to, no, like, we'll connect those dots. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that, that the why is very, it's not only like, it's not only explained, but it's but it's actually highlighted and honored. It's funny. I was I was out uh, with my wife at a Mexican restaurant a couple of days ago, and we were trying a new place in town. And I said, you know, this this tahita really comes together only with the chips. It's under season, but the salt from the chips makes it come together. <laughs> and the why is really a, a crucial seasoning in any type of important business discussion. The same way that salt is perhaps, or some particular seasoning is to a dish. If you don't have it, it's missing. It falls flat. And if you have it in the right amount, it really brings things together. And there's also an opportunity to overuse it. Nobody wants a meal that's just loaded with with salt or paprika. Yeah, I think it comes together. Do you agree? Good example, man. Yes. Listen, I can eat Mexican food for every meal, so I'm with you, Bill. Uh, You and me. Chips and salsa, chips and guac, every meal. Fred, tell me, what was one of the biggest surprises in writing H3 Leadership? You know, I, I would say a couple of things. One is that my story connects with lots of other people's stories. And a lot of people say, thank you for being honest and real and vulnerable and authentic because I needed that. I needed I needed you to model that so I could do it myself. You know, even the DARV example, like a, that mm-hmm. people say, now we're using that in our in our organization. And I didn't realize that all of my staff and all my team were calling me the same kind of nickname. Um, so I would say it gave people permission to sort of do self-evaluation on, on themselves because I went first. Uh, I didn't realize that would be, you know, that big of a deal. Um, I would say the other piece is, is that I thought this was a book for young leaders because that was really was who I was writing it for. But leaders of all levels, all ages have have really – I think connected to it partly because there is, I think there there's truth in just the premise of H3 and be humble, stay hungry, always hustle. That that works for anyone. So the the fact that it's connected across, you know, from from 18 to 78, there, there's been people who go, you know, I get this. Like this this is helpful for me. I thought it would only. I thought it was really going to be helpful most often for young leaders, but. It's proven to uh, have a connection to leaders at all levels. And, Brad, you're still um, doing executive coaching. You're working in the nonprofit sector. You're writing. You're giving presentations. What tool or tip or system do you follow that could be useful to listeners that helps you stay productive and on track? I'm a, I'm a list nerd. I mean, I, I keep tons of lists, and that's just for me, you know, like – um, I'm also a guy who has, who has, have to-do lists everywhere. 
Um, I used to keep everything in my inbox, and now I've, I've changed away from that because that was just overwhelming. Um, but what I'm a Moleskin guy. Well, I mean, I, now my to-do list is – I just basically keep it in an email draft because it was out of my inbox, and it was something that I could right. add to on a regular basis. And, I mean, I use Evernote too. I'm an Evernote guy, but um, I capture – I really capture things in three places, Bill. I capture it in my moleskin, and that's more like book ideas or just thoughts. You know, it's something that captures my attention. The the to do list really is in. I keep that in a in a in a draft email, and then I also will capture things on my phone, and that's really when I I do a lot of running, I do a lot of exercising, I do a lot of walking, you know, travel, and, and I listen to tons of podcasts and tons of digital conversations, and so. I like to capture things from those that I like, that it's a good idea, that's a practical takeaway. I'll put that on my in my notes app on my phone. Um, so th- those really are the three areas that I I try to like keep everything, and you know, I it just works for me. And I, I guess my my advice would be find something that works for you. If it doesn't work for you, but you just saw it on somebody's website and you think, well, you know, so and so is using it. That's not going to work. You're, you're going to lose interest. It's got to work for you, you know. And so make it customize it for for your for your lifestyle. But reality is, there's so many things available to us nowadays. Like there's no excuse. There's no excuse for somebody to not have a system that is helping them be more productive, be more efficient, capture things. Um, and I guess the, the the one piece I would say is that if you think you can remember it, you are totally totally off base. It is not possible. You know, so however you need to capture it, capture it. Absolutely. Brad, thank you so much uh, for joining me here today on my quest for the best. You've been extremely generous in sharing some great ideas from early leadership lessons and helping people make distinctions about whether leaders are made and born. And of course, it's yes and yes. And you've got to take responsibility for that. And you you talked about some of the examples of um, leadership and definitions where leadership is really about influence. And we talked about different examples of that, but the, the one that really sticks out is the the um, doll that you, the gift that you got from your team yeah. at Dave & Buster's, the Angel and Darb dolls, was such a concrete example that people are going to leave here remembering that for sure. Your advice to break the cycle and make sure that people take responsibility for having the culture at work that they really want and all of the ideas we talked about in terms of um, why is being an important question to ask, but even more broadly than that, is that the questions you ask really establish not only your credibility, but you honor the person you're asking. Thank you so much for joining my quest for the best. Why don't you share with us a, a parting thought and then tell people how to stay in touch with keeping up with the ideas and connecting with you for further help with H3 leadership. Yeah, no, thanks, Bill. Thanks again for having me. Good, good summary, by the way, man. That was great. I, I would just add this. Like, you know, we didn't talk much about the hustle piece, but hustle is the premise that you're willing to work hard when needed. And I just want to just want to challenge everyone. You know, we, we think we know what hustle looks like, and it does look like working hard and being willing to stick with it and, and having, a, having a posture and a standard of excellence. But hustle also means that you're, you're generous. It also means that you're, you're hustling around Sabbath and margin. Like you're hustling around your rest, and you're you're the best rester that people know, along with the with the hardest worker, and you're the most generous that people know, along with being the hardest worker, and you're the most collaborative and the most willing to platform other people, 
besides, you know, making it about you winning. So that, that would be my final sort of challenge is, is you have to look at hustle differently. If, if you're serving others and you're making it about others, that's real hustle. If it's all about you, that's incorrect. So I'll, I'll leave with that. You know, the best place to find me is just my first and last name, Brad Lominick, L-O-M-E-N-I-C-K, and that's everywhere, the website, the all the social media outlets, I have that name because I don't think there's anyone else in the world that has my name. So I got lucky with social media. Fred, thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. Honored to be on, man. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on my quest for the best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up my quest for the best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.